Hello friends, welcome to Beyond the News. It's Friday the 10th of November. So far so good with the recording. Sorry about last week. It uh, went wrong on a number of levels. I've no idea why, but it seems to be back now. So I'm going to be covering today what I was supposed to be covering last week, or did cover but didn't record. That will include looking at some of the statements that Donald Trump made on the clip that we played last show, last week. I'm going to be looking at some potential points that he may have made. Also, is Britain about to surrender its tax sovereignty? Carol Vorderman, who's a celebrity here in the UK, talks out, speaks out against new social media policies. Covid shots may slightly increase risk of stroke. And the interviews that I'm going to play on today's show uh, I find them very inspiring. One of them will be from a group of women. Everything that I've talked about for the whole Euless situation, where I said don't vandalise the cameras, go there and say these. we don't need these laws because of this, and debate every point, get the facts out there. Um, a lot of this is done, and it's just said, we need to do this for the earth. Uh, well, hang on. How is this going to benefit the earth? What are the mechanisms exactly? Really look into it and look at alternative options. And you need to debate that at the council level and in the hearts and minds of the public. And I think I've seen one of the most inspiring videos that I've ever seen. And I, there's these three ladies and they're really talking about the Colchester climate emergency. And what they do is fantastic. I'll let them explain it in their YouTube video but what I liked the most after it was looking at there is this some kind of new dynamic political group is it a new sort of a civil liberties group is it a libertarian mindset political group um, it was a gardening channel <laughs> and that's what I loved the most about it it was just like hey you know these people are doing great so I with that in mind before I read into the articles this week, I would like to ask you to send into the email address beyondthenews at protonmail.com. I would like to hear from you about what you're doing with the information that I'm giving you. There's the next three podcasts. It's almost going to be like a three-part podcast where looking at similar things from different angles and one of those things is what difference is this podcast making to you because the whole point that I do this podcast is that it's very much a beginner's guide and to get the information out so um, has this podcast benefited you in the sense that you thought something was amiss with the TV and then we're going to be looking at the COVID inquiry next week with what's come out on that. Has it benefited you from the fact that you are able to um, see perhaps more of what the COVID inquiry was breaking at the time when perhaps it wasn't being said so much or at all on the television? But if you remember I asked you, was it somewhere between six months and a year ago, I asked you to go and spread the information on this podcast to uh, who, whoever in your friends circle would be the most open-minded, display signs of the best critical thinking, that perhaps may not be aware of the information I asked you to build up, the bank of stuff that you think that's most important to you. I suggested things like Klaus Schwab's statement about the WEF, all the if it's in Britain, the British Prime Minister's having their pages on the WEF, that kind of stuff. You know, and when I, Klaus Schwab's got a few WEF statements, hasn't he? Um, you know, penetrate the cabinet, that kind of stuff. Um, would it be uh, the COVID jab articles, um, the detrimental effect of lockdown, whatever it was, there was quite a great deal to suggest that um, the the um, COVID tests, the PCR tests, what their maker, Kerry Wallace, said about them and um, what various government officials, I've played those clips of how effective they are or 
not as the case may be, um, masks having a much reduced um, impact on the stopping of transmission of viruses, that kind of stuff. All stuff that flew in the face of public opinion that there is a great deal of evidence to suggest um, that public opinion at the time may have been wrong or not as accurate as perhaps alternative medias or people that they were calling conspiracy theory types. So I asked you very much to spread that information because it now that we have a great there's almost two realities. There's the one that's come out, which we know about, and then there's the one that seems to be very different that a great deal of people have. And I asked you very much to go and spread this information and ask what people think of it. Start to have conversations, start to talk about it, because we're past the point of sharing it on social media. People just go, oh, is that a conspiracy post? They just scroll past and that's that. But the people that need to hear it may be the ones that don't want to hear it. And I asked you very much to go and do that. And I've been doing that. I've been having some success with it. So what would be a better use of my time um, going forward with one-on-one -on -one projects like that? Or is this podcast inspiring you to get through to others so, because we're at the stage there now where there is a whole amount of truth in the world of conspiracy there is an umbrella of uh, and in the whole realm of conspiracy you'll find for, for example i'm just putting the i'm putting these figure, figures out of my rear end now but let's say 80 percent of people think all conspiracy theories are nonsense but under that umbrella of conspiracy theory, there are things that are certainly provable to be true that a lot of people think are still nonsense. MKUltra, uh, the things we discussed earlier about the vaccines and the counterproductivity of lockdowns, that kind of stuff, masks. Um, the government doing all sorts of experiments on its own population. Um, those kind of, you know, the, the Norman Baker book. Norman Baker MP or former MP for Lewis. What and whenever I ask the audience to do anything like that, their numbers always halve the following week. And I know that and I'm fine with that because I think we're, we're at the stage now where a lot of people just want to go, I want to just be informed so I can look after myself, make the best decisions. But we need to start moving that into, we've got a great deal of truth under the um, umbrella of conspiracy theory. Some of it has turned out to be true. And I think we've got enough evidence to be able to convince a reasonable, critically thinking mind that there is uh, some of it within that umbrella that is true and is worthy of note and time and listening. Now, of course, there's a lot under the umbrella that's still pretty crazy. And I don't cover it on this show. But I think there's enough on this show. There's a disparity between the, the mainstream articles I've read out on this show and a great deal of the popula general population thinking that that is inaccurate. So this, for example, you know, COVID shots may slightly increase risk of stroke in older adults, particularly when administered with certain flu vaccines. That's October the 26th. But if you were to say, hey, uh, the COVID shots you know they may slightly increase your risk of stroke and oh you don't want it you might want to space it out between the other flu vaccines oh shut up anti-vaxxer now there's going to be a great deal of people that were like okay well i'll listen and stuff like that but there will be that disparity and you know how long before the disparity you know because things like this hey covid shots may slightly increase your risk of stroke that would have been called disinformation when the vaccines came out. But now on October 26, 2023, as reported by Brenda Goodman, it's a CNN article. What in a couple of years time will that CNN article look like? Will it be COVID shots? Instead of COVID shots may slightly increase risk of stroke, will it be COVID shots increase risk of stroke? You know? Will the words may and slightly disappear? We don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. 
but it's probably not a good idea to be closed-minded and label anything disinformation at this point, given what we know. But anyway, beyond the news at protonmail.com, beyond the news at protonmail.com, how is this podcast benefiting you and what are you doing with that information? How are you going to be more like the ladies from Colchester that I'm going to be playing on the clip? And then after that clip, it will go to um, a couple of doctors talking, or at least that's what their YouTube channel says, uh, talking about you know, a lot of people, you're, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you're crazy. Well, what is crazy? You're going to be listening to a couple of doctors talking about what crazy is. And it, I'll play that, and then after about, a what, 20 minutes or so, I skip it to a bit where they're specifically talking about the effects of screen time on humans uh, for technological devices and things like that, which I think is interesting. It's a whole sort of two-hour video, but I'm obviously not going to be playing all of that. So that's what will be coming up on today's Beyond the News. But that's very much what I want to have by the time of show. Yeah, so the 10th of November today, 17th, 24th. So on the 24th, I want to be reading out things sent to Beyond the News at ProtonMail.com on how this podcast has helped you, how you've helped it, uh, what pieces of information have helped open up other people's minds to the idea that there may be more in the world that the television says. What ideas could you possibly have um, that you want to do or that you cannot do for whatever reason but you think perhaps it's still a good idea but you're not able to do it that you might want to share? Beyond the news at protonmail.com. Now I know it's a couple of weeks before it goes out on our affiliates like Radio Illumini so I shall wait a couple of weeks and then, uh, yeah, hopefully on the 24th of November, we will have something to discuss. So last week, Trump said uh, about, it was quite an extraordinary video, wasn't it? It wasn't the usual kind of, hey, vote for me, I'll get everything running again. The other guy's not as good as me. It wasn't quite that at all, was it? So, again, I'm neutral on Trump. I did say some things on last week's podcast which are negative. But there's some also things to suggest that... You know, it is one rule for him and one rule for his opposition. Now, that does that make him the good guy? I don't know. But I listen to this. Biden appointed U.S. attorney admits he declined to prosecute Hunter for tax crimes and says it was because he was too short staffed and didn't have enough lawyers to pursue the case. California U.S. attorney Martin Estrada confirmed claims by whistleblowers that he declined to prosecute under Biden for tax crimes. Estrada told congressional investigators he didn't have enough lawyers to pursue the president's son. That's by Kelly Laco on the 26th of October. If you were writing an episode of like The West Wing or a political drama or something like that, and you came up with that for an excuse, the writers would go, no one would believe that. Find something more believable. That, that, would, you, that would never fly. That's just too unbelievable that you'd get away with that. But, you know, if you, <laughs> well, it was the president's son, but yeah, he did, didn't have enough money. didn't have enough money to prosecute. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I, I wonder, I want to know if he gave that testimony with a, a straight face. Uh, so uh, let's have a look at best rated and worst rated on that. Best rated was short staffed my A. Da, 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 da. Yes, pretty much. And that is 879 up, down one. So me, medium engagement, but man, is that polarised. I think that pretty much comes to everyone's mind. And another thing here that is interesting is Connecticut City's mishandled ballots fuel election sceptics. Experts call problem local and limited. A judge's order for a new primary in Connecticut's largest city because of what he called mishandling of absent ballotees is fueling scepticism about the security of US elections as well as conspiracy theories involving the 2020 presidential election. This is by Susan Haig, November the 3rd, and this is by AP's Associated Press. Uh, but election experts contend what happened in Bridgeport, people captured on surveillance video dropping stacks of ballots into outdoor collection boxes, is unique to Bridgeport, a working class city of more than 144,000 
and it has a long history of voting irregularities. Uh, at the very least, they said it was pretty rare and shouldn't be seen as evidence in widespread problems. Uh, in Connecticut, this is a problem here and here alone. Long-term election law attorney Bill Bloss, who is representing a Democratic candidate who successfully challenged the outcome of the city's mayoral primal, primary, said Thursday when asked about the case fueling misinformation about former President Donald Trump's 2020 defeat. And uh, there was a little bit here uh, about the history of the guy. Uh, Ganim, a Democrat who has been repeatedly been elected despite having to uh, despite having to have taken a break from public office while he served seven years in prison for corruption, has denied any knowledge of voting law violations. So we will now go to the ladies in Colchester. This is a true inspiration for us all, in my opinion. The full council of Colchester met to pass a motion on the climate emergency that they have declared to push the government to do more. So a few of us decided to go along and just give them our opinion on their climate emergency motion. Now we did make rather a fatal error, but I'll tell you about that after the second speaker. Good evening. I've been evangelical about renewable energy for over 25 years. That was until the day I actually bothered to research it properly. To my horror, I found that the so-called green initiatives aren't remotely green. They are environmentally disastrous and arguably far worse than anything we are currently doing. But what has shocked me more than the ugly truth about green technology is the attitude of this council when concerns have been raised over the highly polluting products, their inability to be recycled and the child's slave labour involved not to mention the risk to the public from EVs exploding. Most solar panels are made in China, often with forced labour. The extreme temperatures to make the panels come from burning coal. In the US alone, over 50 million panels a year are installed, generating a million metric tonnes of hazardous waste, which isn't cost-effective to recycle. Wind turbines last around 20 years and consume a colossal amount of resources and energy to manufacture, not to mention the blight and the bird kill. Diesel engines start them up and then gallons of oil lubricate them, and they can't be readily recycled either. I've already informed the Environment and Sustainability Panel that lithium batteries for solar storage and EVs are environmentally horrific. Every year, a single lithium mine causes millions of tonnes of permanent waste laced with sulfuric acid and radioactive uranium, polluting the water supply for 300 years. Not to mention the unacceptable human costs of child labour to mine cobalt. The children directly handle toxic cobalt, with many crushed to death in collapsing mine shafts. Three months after this was first pointed out, the council added 100 e-bikes. And more recently, an order has been placed for electric road sweepers. And now you want to vote for more forced labour solar panels and lithium batteries. So is the anti-slavery policy on the council's website there for just decoration? because you clearly don't abide by it. These are not just teasing problems of new technology. They are fundamental flaws, serious ones which cannot be ignored by anyone who genuinely cares about people and the planet. So why then is this council not only adopting them, but pushing for the government to do even more damage? How can habitat-destroying mining, mountains of permanent toxic waste, millions of tonnes of spent solar panels and wind turbines be good for the environment? If you want to push for something genuinely worthwhile, instead of supporting the corporate greed behind this faux green agenda, demand the government do not deploy any technology that badly pollutes on production and cannot easily be recycled. In other words, real green initiatives. The biggest threat to our survival isn't the weather, as history has already shown. It's people blindly following orders without question or thought. Anyone with an ounce of honour and integrity who genuinely cares for this planet and the people on it could not possibly support what is essentially environmental terrorism. Thank you. Thank you. Karina Cooper will be the next speaker. Good evening. Is Council fully aware of the measures needed to ensure UK Parliament meets net zero obligations by 2050? Please note, these are Parliament's obligations, not ours. Is Council fully aware of the UK Government-funded Absolute Zero report agreed in the House of Lords? All airports are closed, all shipping to cease, beef and lamb phased out, fertiliser use restricted, gas boilers 
and natural fires all to be replaced by ineffective heat pumps. Fossil fuels phased out, to name but a few. Who has the money to replace their entire central heating system? You, perhaps? But do your constituents. And what will we eat when there's no beef, lamb or imported foods allowed? Much of our farmland, if not rewilded, is being approved for solar panels. We cannot feed our population already. Does your family want to eat synthetic food? And what effect will that have on their health? To quote Dr Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenpeace, if we actually achieve net zero, at least 50% of the population would die of hunger and disease. Have you studied the full data that IPCC based its reports on? Is anyone here or in the other 300 councils qualified to analyse that data and declare a climate emergency, especially considering the IPCC hasn't declared one? It's puzzling to have local councils declare an emergency, but not central government. Everyone wants to do their bit for the environment, but don't you think we should at least be doing the right bit and make fact-based decisions, not fear-based ones? Central governments are influenced by the corporate world who profit massively from things like net zero. We absolutely rely on the honesty and integrity of our local councils to make sure the public is protected from corporate greed and manipulation, from agendas that don't serve the public interest or the planet. We need to have real expert advice to make sure we do what is right and not just follow what is popular. We ought not to participate in the madness of crowds. We publicly offer council the opportunity to have at least two UN credentialed climatologists with decades of experience and peer-reviewed papers that IPCC themselves have used to come to Colchester and speak directly to us in a public meeting. It's imperative to have an open discussion with the public and have their agreement. Attempting to force draconian measures onto people will backfire. The destruction of 75% of ULA's cameras and the vandalism of 20 mile an hour road signs in Wales are cases in point. We must have a public meeting with true experts who can navigate through the minefield of information that no one here is qualified to. We must separate fact from fiction about the environmental challenges we all face and come together as a community to tackle them. We owe it to ourselves and future generations to get this right. There is no planet B. So please, name a date we can finally hold this most necessary of public meetings in as large a venue as you can provide. Thank you. So you might have noticed they're not responding to any of our questions. And that is the fatal error we made. You have the choice of when you have your say, you can do it right at the beginning with everyone else, or you can attach it to the specific motion you're there to talk about, which is what we did. Unfortunately, that motion was item 10 on the agenda, and by the time they got to it, they were running so behind that they were trying to speed things up, so therefore they didn't respond to anything we said, which means we're going to have to go back and ask those questions all over again. Oh, won't that be fun? But there we go, lesson learned. So anyway, on to the next speaker, which was Cheryl. And she wanted to know why Colchester Council wanted to put in lots more 20 mile an hour zones for air quality when their own report said there weren't any issues with air quality. Additionally, is there evidence to prove that slowing people's journeys down by a third or more improves air quality? While some car emissions will be lower in 20 mile an hour areas compared to 30 mile an hour, Older cars may pollute more. Journeys that take a third longer to complete are likely to increase fuel consumption and an overall increase in particulates because of the extra time in the car and also very likely to cause a backlog of traffic at peak times and potentially cause congestion in nearby areas that aren't in the 20 mile an hour zones. Whilst 20 mile an hour zones are rational outside schools and playgrounds for safety reasons, Elsewhere, there is mounting evidence that these slow zones increase accidents due to the driver frustration and carelessness at slow speeds from both pedestrians and drivers. According to analysis of government data by the Institute of Advanced Motorists, IAM, serious accidents on 20 mile an hour roads increased by 26%, with 29% increase in serious casualties and 19% increase in minor injuries. Simon Best, IAM's chief executive said, the government and councils need to take stock on the effectiveness of 20 mile an hour signs, emphasizing the need for government and councils to reevaluate the impact of these speed limits. 
a recent report from Bath Council raised concerns about the consequences of 20 mile an hour zones, which have been associated with increased fatalities and injuries. The report questions the wisdom of continuing the programme and recommends against expanding area-based schemes. Bath has admitted it cannot afford to scrap the 20 mile an hour speed zones, which were implemented at a staggering substantial cost of £871,000. Colchester, please take note. We certainly can't afford to waste hundreds of thousands of pounds, can we? So here's what a couple of the councillors had to say just prior to voting. I paid tribute to the speakers at the beginning, Rachel, uh, Karina, Cheryl and others. Uh, it was like a breath of fresh air to hear another view. And I think that they remind us we should be taking an engineering approach to the problems and not just a campaigning approach where we just repeat the same things over and over again and just clog up the system. So that was really good. First of all, I'd like to thank the residents um, for coming this evening, sitting through this, um, for attending and, and for speaking. Thank you. Thank you. Um, following some of these issues being raised at the Environment Panel, I, like others, have investigated not just the use of solar panels, batteries, etc., but the befores and the afters of these products. Where are the components that are used, sourced? How are they mined? Where are they mined? Who mines them? What happens to the components after use? Are they recyclable? Do they poison landfill or catch fire? Councillor Gocher mentioned the mining of coal and the motion wants to further ban oil drilling. But what about the mining of the minerals for solar panels? Do we not care where they come from? And therefore, I'm not prepared to vote for a motion that ignores these before and after. And I've asked that every cabinet decision includes these befores and afters so we can all make the best educated decisions that we possibly can and are aware of all the facts. Thank you. So how did they vote? Well, those in So no surprises at all that they voted for it. There really wasn't. So you might be wondering, was all that effort worthwhile? And yes, it was because 17 disagreed with the motion. And we happened to speak to one of the councillors outside and we asked him, could that have happened a year ago? And he said, I don't think so. So the tide is turning. Now, how much influence we've had on that, I, it's impossible to say. But it's very enlightening to see it happen because that's just over a third of the council when all the other climate emergency things they've been absolutely unanimous on, in part thanks to a visit from XR cluttering the pavement. And now just over a third of the council isn't fully supporting it anymore. So the tide is turning and the more we can keep going and enlightening them, because many of them won't have known that information about just how bad a lot of these things are. So it's predetermined before they do the vote which way it's going to go usually. So they had to sit there and listen to just how awful these things are and then they had to vote for it. So some won't care. Others, you could see, well certainly my sense when I was speaking, you felt they were really, it was sinking in what I was saying. They may not have wanted to hear it, they might not agree with it, but it definitely went in. And particularly, I noticed when I was doing all the editing that there was a couple of key moments. One where I said, if you genuinely wanted to do something good for the environment, and the other when I said about blindly following orders without question or thought, some heads went down. And you could see they were feeling it, or they were just getting a bit sleepy at that point. Who knows? Hard to tell with politicians, and it wasn't on the evening. But the thing is, they, the more we educate them, the more they're going to have to wrestle with their own conscience, those that are good people. And there's a lot of good people in Colchester. We may not agree with their points of view, but what we do see is people that are genuinely trying to make a difference. But as public opinion starts to shift and change, we've planted some very strong seeds, some of which are already germinating. 
So they're going to have to be fighting against that and their own conscience. So the more you can share these videos, the better. Now, they still claim that the green tech, despite its problems, is a better option. So we are going to write to them and ask them to evidence that claim because it doesn't seem likely if you include the recycling. So this is beginning to turn into a full-time job for me. Little did I think it would end up like this when I started. But anyway, if you'd like to support the work I'm doing, I put in a couple of donation links to PayPal and Stripe beneath this video. So if you feel so inclined and want to donate to help keep this work going, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, take care. Starts by asking you about this mental health epidemic. Clearly, rates of all kinds of mental health dysfunction, mental health disease are going up. But in your view, where do you think we're going wrong? I think the primary place we're going wrong is that right now, the mental health field is still struggling to understand what exactly causes mental illness. And without knowing precisely what causes it, we have a lot of treatments, but our treatments for the most part are symptomatic treatments, meaning that they can reduce symptoms of the illness. So an antidepressant can improve symptoms of depression, but we're not really curing depression with our treatment. We're not always putting it fully into remission. And people end up oftentimes with chronic illnesses, with chronic depression that waxes and wanes. It comes and goes. Sometimes it gets better with an antidepressant and maybe somebody could be better for two years, but then the depression comes back and then we have to increase the dose or change the medication. And, and people often have low grade symptoms of depression, even when they're doing relatively well with an antidepressant. It's not fully getting rid of all of the symptoms. And I think that is probably one of the biggest places that we go wrong. You've been practicing for 27 years. Paint a picture for us as how you were practicing 27 years ago, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, compared to how you practice today. You know, what happened to shift your perspective? So when I first began my career, when I was, you know, in my fourth year of residency, I was the chief resident of psychopharmacology. And what that meant, meant was that I did consultations on treatment-resistant patients, so people who had schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, chronic unrelenting depression, personality disorders, you name it, but they were chronically ill. They had been in and out of hospitals. They had tried numerous medications. And my role was to oversee a team of consultants. And we would try to come up with what are the next rational medications to try um, in order to try to get people better. And at that point, I was persuaded by the field that if we can just find the right pill, we can get people better and we can get them all the way better, maybe put their illnesses into remission, change their lives, improve their lives, reduce their suffering. That was the goal. Our goal was to help people and the, the tool that we had was find the right pill. And I went along that way for a few years, hoping that if I could find the right pill, maybe augment it with the right psychotherapy, maybe sometimes augment it with electroconvulsive therapy or transcranial magnetic stimulation. Well, TMS actually didn't exist back then, but ECT did, and we were certainly using it then. Um, so maybe if we augment in rare cases, but if we can just find the right pill, that was really the goal. If we can just find the right pill, we can get people better. And after several years of that, I quickly began to become discouraged and demoralized that for 95 plus percent of the patients that I was seeing, we weren't finding the right pills. We would find the right pill that might work for three months or a year sometimes even two or three years, even in the highly functioning people that I was treating, the business executives and others, 
I could get them better for a couple of years, but then something would happen and the pill would stop working or the pills would stop working. And we were right back where we started and people were in and out of hospitals. Their lives were sometimes devastated. I mean, they were taking their pills religiously and they would have horrible depressive episodes or manic episodes or psychotic episodes that were ruining their lives, even though they were compliant with treatment. It would disrupt everything. They had to take time off from work. Sometimes they got fired from jobs. Mm -hmm. Some of them lost relationships. Divorces were happening. Boyfriends and girlfriends were breaking up with people over these episodes. And I was I was frustrated and demoralized. Like, what, why aren't we finding the right pills for all these people? Mm -hmm. And I quickly began to realize, I don't think that's going to be the answer. Yeah. It's interesting that if you go back to root cause thinking, you know, you and me are both very passionate about trying to get to the root cause of our patients' problems. But often when we're thinking about a problem and we're not sure we've got the right solution, I always think, well, what's the belief I need to hold in order for me to think the way that I'm currently thinking? And then if I apply that through the lens of what you just said, it's the belief is that this patient has depression. It's a thing that they've got. And that the only way to manage this is by finding the right pills. And if this pill is not working, it simply means I haven't got the right pill yet or the right combination of pills. But if you go back upstream and go, well, hold on a minute. What if the depression is a symptom of something else, right? What if pills are just one way to tackle the symptoms? What if there were other ways to tackle these symptoms? Because we don't get taught that in medical school, really, do we? We don't get taught that. The model, to me at least, and in primary care, we see a ton of mental health problems, right? But the model usually is some combination of medications and psychotherapy. It is. And I think the medication piece, many many mental health professionals will defend it as a root cause issue. And in their mind, the root cause of mental illness is a chemical imbalance in the brain. It is a neurotransmitter imbalance. And some people have a serotonin imbalance. And so they do well with serotonergic medications like Prozac or Paxil or others. And other people might have a neurotransmitter imbalance related to norepinephrine or dopamine. And so they may do better with other types of antidepressants or stimulant medications. People with psychotic disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, their problem is too much dopamine. And so we need to block the dopamine receptors in their brain, and that will bring about an antipsychotic effect. And so I think many of the mental health professionals, in their minds, they think they are after the root cause, um, it's a chemical imbalance, and we just need to figure out which chemicals in which patients, and if we can just rebalance our chemicals appropriately, and that means get finding the right medication or combination of medications at the right doses, in the right timing, maybe sometimes at night, sometimes in the morning, maybe three times a day. If we can just find that perfect combination we can balance their chemicals appropriately and they will be in remission and they will live happily ever after. And the reality is that's all hogwash. None of that's true. Many people who are listening right now or watching this have heard that depression, for example, is down to a chemical imbalance. So I need to correct that chemical imbalance. And if I could correct it, I will no longer have depression. You're saying that's hogwash. Yeah. Help us understand that. So the antidepressants do relieve suffering and do improve symptoms in some people. But I actually don't think they're working in the ways that many people think they're working. 
it's much more complicated than most people think. So many psychiatrists even to this day will think that chemical imbalance is occurring in the brain. So there's a norepinephrine imbalance or a serotonin imbalance somewhere in the brain. And this pill is going to correct that imbalance in those brain cells and that'll restore normal health. That's not at all the way the pills work. So for serotonin, for instance, 90 to 95% of the serotonin in the human body is actually produced in the digestive tract, not in the brain. And then that leads to this whole exploding area of research, the gut-brain connection, the gut microbiome, what influence is it having on our brains? And the more research that we're getting, the more we're uncovering that, whoa, this is a huge field. The gut actually plays a huge role in brain function mm -hmm. and brain health. And so we need a more comprehensive, holistic way of understanding what is Prozac or Zoloft doing. There's a high likelihood that, in fact, it's probably affecting the function of the gut, and that is somehow getting transmitted to the brain and affecting how the brain functions. Mm -hmm. um, the research that I've been doing over the last seven years strongly suggests something much broader than that, and that is that although we are focused on individual neurotransmitters, or sometimes we're focused on hormones. Mental illness is due to stress, and that's about cortisol. Mm. It's cortisol. Mental illness is a cortisol problem. And we actually have a fair amount of evidence that people with chronic mental disorders do have cortisol dysregulation. But it gets tricky really fast. Some people have too much cortisol. Other people have too little cortisol. Um, so we know cortisol dysregulation might be playing a role for some people, but how does that work? Right now, our field is just essentially shooting in the dark, trying to understand it all. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. It's not one of the problems that we're looking for one cause and one solution, right? Yes. It's a serotonin imbalance, right? That's what causes depression. So I can give you something to correct that, boom. But in many ways, that's because of the scientific method by its very nature is reductionist, right? A lot of the time we have to narrow things right down to study one thing and, and try and go, well, you know, can this explain it or not? But maybe it's multiple different inputs and in different patients, those inputs are in differing amounts, right? So the way I approach pretty much all chronic health problems is the patient comes in. Of course, I listen to the symptoms and in my head, I'm trying to put together what they're saying. I'm also always thinking, what really is driving this? How has this come about? It didn't just happen overnight. What, what are the inputs into this person's life over a number of years that means today they've come in complaining of these symptoms? And in my head, there's seven or eight core things I look at, food, exercise, sleep, stress, and you know that stress could be physical stress or emotional stress or trauma. I look at things like how much time are they spending outside? What is their vitamin D level like? I think about environmental toxins. I think about chronic infections that they may have had and may still be underlying some sort of immune system dysfunction. And I'm always thinking about are any of these relevant here? And if so, can I manipulate them? Can I help the patient impact them? And I personally have been using that approach very successfully, whether it be with someone with a mental health problem or with an autoimmune disease or with type 2 diabetes. It's what is the root cause? And I, I kind of feel there are, there are certain insults that the body can get, right? There, there's kind of there's not that many. Of course, there's infinite amount of toxins that we could talk about, but they all come under these broad categories. And then with those insults, the body, depending on your genetic susceptibility, depending on your individuality, with those same inputs, you might get type 2 diabetes. With those same inputs, someone else might get depression. With those same inputs, someone else might be diagnosed with, you know, an autoimmune disease. 
well, I don't think these things are quite as separate as they've been made out. You know, we get taught about these ICD-10 codes. Oh, you've got depression. You've got type 2 diabetes. Uh, you've got heart disease. As if these things are completely separate. And I think we're learning more and more that, you know, beyond mental health, and I know your focus is primarily on mental health issues, but you can expand your theory, which I want you to outline very shortly. I think you can expand it beyond mental health. It can also cover type 2 diabetes, obesity, and even Alzheimer's, I would say. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I came to the exact conclusion that you just outlined, but I came to it as an academic psychiatrist trying to understand what on earth causes schizophrenia? What causes bipolar disorder? How can we understand chronic unrelenting depression? How do these things fit together? What is happening in the cells of the brain? What are all of the clues that we have? And how can I put them together to understand the larger picture? And in the, exactly the way you just described, that the same insults might lead to depression in one person and type 2 diabetes in another. For those who don't know this, mental illness is completely enmeshed with other chronic metabolic disorders. So people with mental disorders, on average, are much more likely to develop obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, and other types of disorders like that. On average, people with mental disorders die early deaths. Men lose about 10 years of life. Women lose about seven years of life. And this is for all diagnostic categories. This is for ADHD and simple anxiety disorders and depression. The people with the serious mental disorders like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, depending on what study you look at, they're losing usually anywhere from 10 to 25 years of life on average. And so it is all connected. But I came at it as an academic psychiatrist, really focused on the brain, but trying to look at the bigger picture. Wait, there's a gut-brain connection. What exactly is the gut doing to brain function? What is happening in cells? And at the end of the day, I was led to these tiny things in our cells called mitochondria. Mm. And it turns out we have a tremendous amount of science and evidence um, to support that potentially metabolic dysregulation, mitochondrial dysfunction. There are lots of terms we could use, and they're, they mean slightly different things, so I don't mean to try to make this simple. But if we understand metabolic dysfunction, that actually helps us understand why the brains mm. of people with mental illness are malfunctioning and causing symptoms of chronic mental illness. And then I tried to explore, well, what on earth would cause that? And I was led to everything you just listed. Yeah. There's just so much I want to unpack with you. I genuinely want this episode to be really practically useful for people because of how many people are suffering at the moment with their health, beyond mental health, right? A couple of things I just want to clarify there. You just mentioned that um, people suffering with mental illness are more likely significantly to develop a whole host of other conditions like type 2 diabetes and obesity. Do we know which way that relationship goes? And what I mean by that is, do we know if people who have obesity or are you know, carrying too much weight, for example, are they more likely to develop mental health problems as well? Uh, so that's the first thing I just want to clarify. Yes, it, they are all strong bi-directional relationships. So people with diabetes are more likely to develop mental disorders, a wide array of them. We best studied our depression and anxiety disorders. People with diabetes, on average, about twice as likely to develop depression. But when they get it, it lasts four times longer. People with cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, much, much more likely to develop depression, anxiety symptoms, three to five times more likely in many series. Uh, people with obesity, research paper just came out, I think, two weeks ago. Um, people with obesity more likely to develop 
a wide range of mental disorders, anywhere from 50% more likely up to 300, over 300% more likely, ranging from psychotic disorders to depression and anxiety to ADHD to nicotine dependence. Mm -hmm. If you're obese, you're more likely to become dependent on nicotine, meaning you're more likely to become a smoker or a vapor. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. And I guess many people will jump to the conclusion, I imagine, when you talk about the relationship between people with obesity being more likely to develop depression and anxiety, I guess some people go, yeah, I get that. That's to do with stress, right? They maybe have been fat shamed. They're living in a society whereby being overweight can be looked down upon. People can say nasty things at school. As an adult, you may be discriminated against. So people may go, that's a psychological issue, right? That's why they're also developing depression and anxiety. But your central thesis, to me at least, is that all mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain. Yes. Right? I'm just going to repeat that. All mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain. Now, we have covered metabolic dysfunction before on this podcast, right? But usually, we talk about it in relation to obesity or type 2 diabetes. But you're saying something that to many people is going to be hugely provocative, that actually mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain. So, Dr. Palmer, what do you mean by that? So there's a lot to unpack. And maybe the first place to start is defining what is a mental disorder. Because right now, DSM doesn't, you know, the, the way we usually think about mental illness is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual or the ICD codes. We've got these labels, things like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, anorexia, alcoholism. Alcohol use disorder is the official name. Most people know what those things mean. And when I say them, most people have a clear picture of what I'm talking about. Depression, yeah, we kind of know what that is. Anxiety, we kind of know what that is. Um, but in fact, DSM doesn't always distinguish between trauma reactions or normal reactions to adversity and brain disorders. So let me give you a clear example. So if a man was married and had two kids whom he loved dearly and his wife and children were killed tragically in an auto accident, he would become depressed potentially even suicidally depressed. He may feel like my life is over. I, I have no reason to live. I want to join them. I'm, I'm, I'm a man of faith. I know that they're in heaven and I, I'm ready to join them in heaven. I can't, I can't bear to live without them. I don't consider that a brain disorder. In fact, I would say if that man did not become depressed, he probably does have a brain disorder. It would be highly unusual for him to not become severely depressed. Not necessarily suicidal. How long does that man get to be depressed before DSM says he has a brain disorder? He's got 13 days. He gets 13 days to get over it. So on day 14, if he is still struggling and still feels low, and doesn't feel that life is worth living. He, he now has major depressive disorder. So that, that would be reasonable from the profession to diagnose him with major depressive disorder 14 days after his family and wife had died. Yes. And that means maybe he's got a serotonin imbalance now, and maybe he would benefit for, from some Prozac. Maybe psychotherapy, maybe some grief therapy, any common sense mental health clinician should know that. And most do. Most would give him grief therapy. But according to DSM, he now has a brain disorder. And his brain disorder does not get distinguished from somebody else who has had chronic, unrelenting suicidal depression for 20 years. 
who says, I don't know why I'm depressed. That man at day 14 get lumps in, gets lumped into the same category as somebody else who I think does have a brain disorder. If you're suffering from chronic, unrelenting depression for 20 years, and I ask this person, why are you depressed? And they say, I have no idea. I don't know what's wrong with me. I just cannot snap out of it. On, on the surface, I know I have a decent life, but I am miserable. I just, I'm never happy. I'm always so pessimistic. I think maybe I'd rather be dead. I think that person has a brain disorder, but DSM doesn't distinguish those categories. So if we go back to your, That's where probably most importantly, it, it is to, and just move on now to what they say is something important about screen time. You can, of course, go listen to the whole episode, the whole video for yourself. The video will be put in the comments link. So I'm moving forward now to about one hour forty-five. Describing people of human contact, human relationships with each other, and so even if you're on Zoom with a friend, it is not the same thing as being in person with that friend. When two humans are together, they see each other, they see each other's entire body. You respond to a lot of nonverbal cues. You can make eye-to-eye -eye contact. And whether you realize it or not, those things have powerful yeah. effects on our brains. Our brains are hardwired to crave that. Yeah. We crave human connection, because human connection is about survival. It's about safety, that we are, we are programmed to stay with other humans, to be with our family, with our tribe. We are programmed. Any parent knows this. Your kid is clinging to you in a, in a crowded place or something. That's all programmed, but your kid is not clinging to a screen. Your kid is clinging to a human, a living yeah organism. And, and when we look at screens, we're not getting those same inputs. And I think our brains perceive that. And, you know, we have an epidemic of loneliness right now. And I think screens contribute to that epidemic. Oh, if we, if we, question. if we engage with other humans, even for a 10th of the time that we're on screens, it would probably get rid of a lot of the loneliness epidemic. Yeah. Just on that sort of screen use in the evening, I think there's two other factors, well, two things to mention. One is, and why I'm so against schools giving homework on screens to children. And I'm, I'm very open to hearing, um, you know, alternative viewpoints. Some teachers may make a case on, you know, some people will say that it's a tech heavy world now. We need to get our kids ready for it. We need them skilled and able to use all these, all this technology so that they can enter the job market. But my argument would be, yeah, sure, do that in the day. Do that in the morning where it's going to have less impact on your circadian rhythm. Don't do it in the evening. Do not send home, do not send children home asking them to go on brightly lit screens that we know can play havoc with your sleep. Like, at what cost do you give a good education? Like, it's like, what, what's the point of a good education if the cost of that is mental illness? It doesn't make any sense to me. Or cognitive impairment. Or cognitive so impairment. We, we need to think about the, these children's brains developing. Yeah. And we need to foster, again, whole person, whole child care. So if you're trying to educate a child and that, and that child is malnourished, you're fighting an uphill battle. You're not going to be very successful. And the intervention that's going to be most important is nourishing that child. Yeah. And I agree with you. These excessive screen exposure may in fact be adversely affecting neurodevelopment broadly. And that may have effects not just on mental health, but on cognitive health, on people's ability to function in society with other humans. Yeah, I, to work on teams, to to work in service sectors, 
if they're expected to serve other humans in any way, whether you're a physician, a nurse, um, or an engineer working on a team with other engineers, yeah. you, you need to be able to deal with other humans. And, and I think that needs to be factored into yeah. a well-rounded educational plan. And so I completely agree with you. I don't think any kid nowadays is going to come out of school not knowing how to use technology. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's our biggest uh, yeah. fear. I, I, I think the, the, the other... So that's where I'll leave it this week. Thank you very much for joining us. And makes me glad hearing all that bad negative stuff about screens that I am just an audio show. Thanks very much for joining us. <laughs>